You're listening to Agriculture, a podcast that interviews a range of inspirational people from the farming community with a whole host of interesting tales to tell. Coming up in today's episode. The only way to grow and to develop and to improve is by making mistakes. And to see that making mistakes is the great indicator that you're pushing yourself to the max. I'm Mary Jane Laurie, and in this episode, I talk to Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, MBE, aka The Black Farmer. Wilfred is of the Windrush generation and describes his difficult start to life in the UK before he eventually found his chance working at the BBC. Here he found a passion for food. He left television to start his own food and drink marketing company, which gave him the opportunity to finally realise his dream of owning his own farm. The Black Farmer is now a successful brand which sells a range of products including sausages and deli products. Wilfred tells us about his life and his determination to become a farmer and how the danger of playing it safe can hold us back from success. Thank you for joining us today, Wilfred. Can you tell us about your background? Where did you grow up? Well, thank you very much for for inviting me. And a bit about my background. Well, I was actually born in in Jamaica, and I am of the Windrush generation. Okay. And you may be aware that um, this year we'll be celebrating the 75th year um, of Windrush, and I'm going to be doing quite a lot of activities uh, around that. And in fact, I was brought to, I was born in a place called Frankfield, Clarendon. And if you went to the island today, you'd see that's right in the center of the island and it's farming country, very, okay. very, very rural. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who came to this country in the 50s actually came from rural backgrounds. But what they did is that they went and where the work was, that happened to be in the, in the towns and cities. So I've always felt that sort of farming and being in a a rural environment is very, very much part of my DNA, as it were. And so when you came over to the UK, what was your life like in the UK? Well, when I came to the UK, it was a massive culture shock because what happened in those days is that people like my parents, they came to this country, first of all, settled. And my sister and I was left to be brought up by by my mom's relatives and then at the age of four I then came to join them and I can remember that when I arrived it was the first time I'd ever seen snow because you don't have snow in in Jamaica and it was cold it was seriously cold and nothing had prepared me um, um, for the cold and again if you're from a rural background where it's lots of space to then suddenly come into an urban environment you're just really bombarded by all these sort of different um, senses. So it would have taken a while to adjust to these new circumstances. And so you lived in a city to begin with, is that right? I lived in one of those classic inner city areas, and the area is called Small Heath. Now, Small Heath is those classic inner city areas where it's full of a lot of immigrants. So I can remember where we lived. We had the Irish on one side, Asians on the other side. We were in the, in the middle, and I refer to it as society's dustbin heat. It's the sort of place where there isn't much hope, there isn't much opportunity, and I remember as a child being in an environment of misery. Oh. It was um, it's one of those environments where sort of dog eat dog. There was eleven of us, so I want you to try and remember this. There's eleven people living in a two up two down terrace house. Yeah. So I was brought up with three to a bed. And I can remember going hungry. Uh, my mom having to try and feed 
all 11 people with one chicken. Wow. And it ain't the sort of chickens that you now get from Tesco's or, or Sainsbury's. It's one of those old boiler hens that actually takes weeks to cook in order to tenderize them. And even to this day, I have a real fetish for chicken bones because I can remember <laughs> my mother, I can remember trying to get every bit of nutrition out of these bones. And so we were so sort of hungry. And because we were quite poor, my father had an allotment and it was my responsibility as the oldest boy to look after this allotment. And this allotment really became my oasis from the misery of where I was living. And in a sense, my story starts at this point because I can remember as an 11-year-old boy, I loved being on this allotment so much. I just absolutely loved it because, you know, it was a sense of peace. It was just you and nature and the elements. I loved it. And I made myself a promise that one day I would like to own my own farm. Okay. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but it was a promise that I'd lodged into the back of my mind. And then every single thing that I subsequently did with my life was to get into the position to eventually buy my farm. And it took me some 35, 40 years to achieve it. But one of the things I like to advocate really is that life is about having the courage to be audacious, is to dream big. You know, if we were in America, they really understand that sort of concept that, you know, in order to achieve anything, you have to be able to think and um, behave big, reach for the stars. One of the disadvantages about being British is that people tend to and play that sort of stuff down. They don't like the idea that somebody's going to try and get above their station. But you have to have the audacity to dream it. Because if you don't dream it, it will never happen. And not only dream it, but put it out there. Put it out there. Because it's by putting it out there, you will meet the people that you need in order to make these dreams come true. So can you tell us about the steps you took your working life, how you got from being that boy in poverty to owning your own farm? What was your career before being a farmer? I went, in those days, they were called secondary moderns. I went to the local secondary modern uh, in Smallheath, the place that I was brought up. And this school was a dump. It was a pretty awful place. The teachers hated being there. The kids hated being there. They didn't really educate us. They policed us. It was the law that you had to go to school, but they didn't really expect that we would achieve much with our lives. And to make things even worse, I am dyslexic. And in those days, people had absolutely no understanding of what dyslexia was. And so I spent most of my, in those days, they were allowed to cane you, for example. So I spent most of my time being caned by my headmaster and people not understanding why I couldn't sort of grasp the, the basics, really. Yeah. So at the age of 16, I left school without any qualifications at all. I could hardly read and write. And there didn't seem to be much options available to me. I wanted to get away from home because 11 in a two up, two down terrace house is not very pleasant. So the only option available to me was to join the army. Okay. Now, in those days, if you were a black guy and you had a bit of an attitude, there was one or two things that was going to happen. You were either going to knuckle down and, you know, accept discipline and to do as you're told, or your life was going to be made in misery. So you can imagine what happened to me. My life was made in misery. 
And eventually, you know, they did some atrocious things, things they could never get away with doing now. But eventually, I got kicked out of the army. And I got kicked out of the army. And the only qualification that I have to my name is a dishonorable discharge. <laughs> and so I'm 18 years old. And everything you could predict would be happening to a child from my background, I seem to be on course for being one of society's failures. And what was really interesting is that in those days, if you were a failure at everything, they thought, well, what could we do with him? And believe it or not, they thought, well, going to catering, because they just thought, well, at least he could wash up pots and pans. And luckily, I, I went to catering college, and I liked it. I liked the speed. And I didn't work in anywhere glamorous. I was flipping burgers and doing the basics, but I liked it. And so I managed to get a job working in catering establishment for a couple of years. But that dream I had as an 11-year-old boy to eventually own my own farm, I knew that was never going to happen flipping burgers. That the only way I was ever going to fulfill that dream is to try and, you know, earn some money in order to buy land, get access to land. Because one of my big frustrations is that if you're an immigrant, getting access to land is impossible. And it's one of the things I would like to see change yeah. is that you're at a massive disadvantage if you're from a non-traditional farming background. And if you're from a diverse background, it's impossible to get hold of land. Anyhow, I knew I couldn't just um, rely on chefing in order to fulfill that dream. And a lot of my talk is going to be about being audacious. And I can remember at the time watching a BBC documentary series. They used to make social documentaries, and I used to love that, those series. And I can remember saying to my family and friends, you know what, I'm going to go and get a job at the BBC as a producer-director. So you can imagine, all of my family and friends thought, this guy is nuts. He <laughs> could hardly read and write. Television is full of the Oxbridge types. You know, who on earth do you think you are? But for your listeners, I'm going to give them a piece of advice. And I've lived my life on this really important piece of advice. And it is this. You can achieve anything that you want in life. It doesn't matter on your education. It doesn't matter on your background. It doesn't matter on your race. It doesn't matter on your sex. The people who go on and succeed... They succeed because they have two things. All you need to do is have these two things. And if you focus on these two things, you could achieve anything that you want. The first thing is that you need to be ruthlessly, ruthlessly focused. And what I mean by that is that you're able to get rid of the white noise of living. When most people look at their lives, they will see that it's full of things that really do not matter. If you actually assess the time and effort you put into things, you will see that actually so much time is wasted on nonsense. And that any, you take an athlete where they're absolutely focused. If they've got to get up at four o'clock in the morning to train, they get up at four o'clock in the morning. If they've got to do training and not go out partying, they will train. It's focus, focus, focus. That is the first thing. The second thing is far, far more important than the first. And that is passion. You have to have passion. And the reason why passion is important is because passion defies logic. It defies reason. It doesn't add up. It helps you get over all of the hurdles that life throws at you. 
And people get really confused when I say passion. They go, what the hell do you mean by passion? And I said, well, have you ever seen anybody when they're in love? They do crazy things. They yeah. do things that when somebody looks at them, they, it doesn't add up. But they are so driven, that carries them through things that you just would never think any rational person would do. That is what passion is. And so it's the combination of focus and passion you need in order to achieve anything. So I started off with the audacity to actually say, right, I'm going to work for the BBC. And I thought, right. I wrote to every single, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, I got a copy of the Radio Times. I wrote to every single producer director in the Radio Times. Not one of them wrote back to me. I tried ringing them. Nobody would take my calls. At the time, I was living in Birmingham, and Birmingham had a BBC Studios called BBC Pebble Studios. And I went up to the security guards that used to man the entrance to let people in and out of the buildings. And they had these wooden huts that they would have to get coming in and out of to open these barriers to let people in and out of the buildings mm -hmm. yeah. because it wasn't automated. And I can remember saying to them, look, I'll open the barriers for you. And they just thought, well, you know, he'll do it. It means we could stay in our warm little cubbyhole. And I did that for months, opening the barriers, letting people in and out of the building. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, madam. Doing that for months. From there, I then met the cleaners who were going in to clean the offices. And I said, look, can I come and clean the offices with you? And they said, okay, fine. And so I cleaned that for months. And then this happened. I remember this guy even to this day. I met a guy, and he was a big senior executive at BBC Pub Mill at the time. His name was Jock Gallagher. And I went up to him, very enthusiastic, and said, I want to work in television. I want to do this, and I want to do that. And he told me to come up to his office, and he spoke to me for about an hour. And he said, look, you're not the sort of person we employ in television because you don't have the education and you've got a bit of an attitude problem. But he said, look, I'll do this, he said. This is something he said he might he thought he might live to regret, but he'll do this. He said, I will give you a job as a runner for three months and then to see what happens. Now, that man, having the courage to give me that break, then started a, a long career in television. Okay. And one of the things I say to people is this, and this is important. What you've got to do in life is to find your guardian angels. Find your guardian angels. The people that are going to help you achieve the things that you want to achieve. And everything that I've ever achieved in my life, somebody has gone out of their way to give me a break. Yeah. And you won't find those people unless you're prepared to put it out there and those people will come your way. And so I ended up working at the BBC for 15 years. I traveled the world. I mean, I started off as a runner. I then went on to be a researcher. I then went on to be a producer director. I traveled the world, you know, all countries around the world making films about food and drink. It was a very famous program at the time. Most of the big name celebrity chefs, it was my job to break them in. So I gave Gordon Ramsay his first break in television. Oh, really? I gave James Martin his first break in television. It was my job at the time to break these guys in because it was a time when television was very expensive and we used to shoot film, we didn't shoot video. And so these guys needed to know how to perform in front of camera. Yeah. And the Oxford types were very intimidated by them. Mm -hmm. But because I'm from the same side of the street as they were, I weren't, you know. So there are many times I would have to let these guys know in no uncertain terms who was in charge, <laughs> do as you say, or else would or 
you know, we'll go outside to sort the problem out. <laughs> and so that was my job is to break in all the big name celebrity chefs, travel the world making these films. And I did that for 15 years. And it's, it's worth a pause here because when you look at my life and you think, my God, this guy has gone from society's dustbin heap to a pretty glamorous job that, you know, anyone would think actually the thing to do now is to keep your head down, be very, very grateful and not to upset the apple cart. But I say to people this, the moment you settle, the moment you settle, that is when you're at the greatest danger. That is why it is very, very important to have your own personal purpose. And this dream of one day owning my own farm always stopped me from settling, stopped me from getting lazy because as wonderful and as glamorous as the BBC was, I knew I was never gonna earn enough money to be able to buy this farm. And the only way that I would need to do that is to leave the BBC and set up my own business. I can remember, um, you know, I'm, I'm at the BBC, that seems like a secure job. And a lot of people have dreams of things they would love to do. You know, they'd love to change their lives. And the one thing that stops them doing that is fear. Fear holds so many people prisoners to live in survival mode than to live a life that they wanted to, to live. And I've always said that fear is a construct. It's not real. It's, it's stories you tell yourself. And what you've got to try and do in life is how to make a friend of uncertainty. There's no such thing as certainty. The only thing that is certain in life is that life is uncertain. And therefore, if you are thinking about getting some degree of certainty before you make your move, you never will. What I say to people is this, is that you go forward saying, I do not know what I might meet, what may come my way. I don't know. But whatever I meet, I will find a way to overcome it. That's a mindset that you could, you should have, not to be able to foresee all the problems that will come your way, because you won't. It's about saying, whatever comes, I will find a way. So that's the message I would say to anybody who has dreams of things that they want to do. Don't let fear hold you prisoner. So I could remember saying that if I want to be true to this dream, of owning my own farm. I have to leave the BBC and set up my own company. So I decided to leave the BBC and set up my own food and drink marketing agency. And I can remember just having enough money to pay my mortgage for three months. Mm -hmm. After that, I would have had no money. I had no clients. I had nothing. Wow. And there's nothing that focuses the mind more than, you know, getting rid of the safety nets, just getting rid of the safety net and absolutely going for it. And again putting it out there, people gave me a break. People said, right, this guy is hungry, he's prepared to do what it is, and they gave me a break. And I then, you know, worked on brands like Lloyd Gross and Sources, Kettle Chips, Plymouth Gin, Cobra Beer. They're big brands now, but back in the day, they were very small challenger brands. And I ran that business for 15 years, and then that gave me the money to buy my farm. It took me some 30 or 40 years to do it. So one of the things I say to people is dream early. Dream early because life is a marathon and that you've got to just last the course. And then that's how I bought my farm. So tell us about that farm. It's in Devon, isn't it? Yeah, so I used to go down to Devon and Cornwall on holiday quite a lot. And I can remember when I decided to look around for a, for a farm I'm on the border. I'm, I'm, I'm a, the nearest town is a place called Launceston, but Launceston is in Cornwall. My farm is just on the Devon side of the border. 
and it was an old, it'd been in the family for, for centuries. It was a dairy farmer and he was, you know, retiring. His kids didn't want to get anything to do with it. So he wanted out and uh, it was a whole, it was a mess. And I can remember when I bought this place, all the next door neighbors thought it was odd. They just thought, what is a guy from up country, as they say, up country, <laughs> wanting to come and, you know, buy um, a farm. It just didn't make sense. Their view was that anybody wanted to make things for themselves would be wanting to go up country rather than coming down to the farm. And I can remember that they people just couldn't get their heads around it. And, and here's an example of that. I can remember when I put up my first polytunnel, somebody called out the police because they thought it was a cover for growing ganja. <laughs> we, you know, they just yeah. thought, you know, black guy down on the farm, you know, he's obviously growing, something. Uh, doing yeah. something um, illicit. But what I've always been a great believer on is that it's outsiders who see opportunity. Because one of the things that I noticed when I bought this farm is that this massive gap between urban and rural Britain. It's as though you're in different countries. They don't understand each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of suspicion about the both worlds. So I thought, actually, with this, there's an opportunity. So I thought, I'm going to create a brand that is going to try and actually link these two worlds together and to be more, more of a celebration. The other thing I realized is that there are no black farmers at all in this country. And, you know, I explained earlier on about why that is. It's just that getting access to land is almost impossible. It's a bit of a closed shop. So I thought, you know, I said, right, I'm going to create a brand that's going to be very, very mainstream and to appeal to everybody. And I didn't want it to be an ethnic brand. I wanted it to be very, very British to celebrate my Britishness, because even though I was born in Jamaica, I regard myself as being very, very British. Yeah. So I thought, right, I'm going to do something that's a quintessentially British. So I thought, well, what's very, very British? And I thought, well, the British love their sausages. So I thought, right, I'm going to create a sausage. Yeah. Uh, I found a manufacturer that would um, help me in developing a, a fantastic sausage. And then when I found the manufacturer, I then developed the product. The next thing was to come up with the brand name. And I was spending ages scratching my head thinking, what am I going to call this brand? And then one day it came to me. All of my next door neighbors used to call me the Black Farmer. And I thought, God, you know, well, that's a pretty good brand name. Yeah. Not only is it a really good brand name, it's got, a, it's got an edge to it. In this sort of politically correct um, age we live in, people are not too sure about what is the correct language to use when you're referring to people of, of colour. Still today, people would refer to you in certain rural environments as coloured rather than black because they think it's more polite to say coloured rather than black. Yeah. Anyhow, before I decided to use that name, I thought, look, Wilfred, I know that you're quite a courageous guy, but what you should do is do all this stuff that a sensible person would do and to get it researched. So yeah. I went out and did all the classic research. And if anybody wants to take another important lesson from this podcast, this is another important lesson to take. And it is this. The research came back and said, do not call it the black farmer. They said, do not call it black farmer. It would upset people. It will be an issue. And the lesson is this. Research could tell you what people were thinking yesterday. Be very accurate in telling what they were thinking yesterday. Research is very accurate in telling what people are thinking today. But research cannot tell you what people are thinking tomorrow. That's where you've got to go with a conviction of your own belief. You know, 
you'll never ever change a landscape if you are waiting for the evidence to uh, give you the approval to do it. Anything of courage means you've got to go with what you believe to be right. So I did call it the black farmer and there was a bit of controversy to start with, but eventually in time, it became really accepted. And therefore it also helps to bring about the question about why aren't there you know, more black farmers? Why can we, you know, what can we do to bring about that? Anyhow, I decided to call it the, the black farmer. The next thing to do was to get the products um, listed in the supermarkets. Now, you will know tons of stories uh, people tell you how really difficult it is to get the supermarkets to take on board the project. You yeah. know, they're really, really difficult, really, really difficult. And they don't want anything new. They want they don't want anything upsetting them. And I went to all of the supermarkets and they were looking at these sausages and they're saying, well, they couldn't understand the concept. A black farmer, sausages. They say to me, are these sausages for black people? They just <laughs> couldn't understand that. Yeah. Being black could be part of the mainstream. And so they all said no. But when I launched my brand, it was just at the time of the big social media internet revolution. Because before, when I launched, Facebook had just started. Every single social media platform now, you, you take for granted, did not exist. And before then, the only way to um, communicate with your consumer was via the gatekeepers. And these gatekeepers would be TV, magazines, newspapers, where you'd have to advertise in order to get your message across to um, your consumers. What the social media did was allow you to have direct access to potential consumers. You could communicate with them directly. So I was firstly well aware of how powerful that was. So when all the supermarkets said no, my strategy was to go and do all the big major counter shows around yeah. the country, yeah. do, do them. And as a brand, and obviously somebody in marketing, I recognize that actually the power of the consumer. Make sure the consumer is on your side because if they are, they will really fight your corner. So branding is obviously key to your success. And you, and you talk about being bold and, and picking a name that was probably at the time a little controversial, but turned out to be the perfect brand. How should farmers go about creating a brand for their business? And should all farmers have a brand for their business, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I don't know whether I'm going to be kicked into space by farmers, but the big problem that I think that the farming industry has is that it does not have a relationship with the with, with their consumers. The, the gatekeepers have that relationship, the supermarkets. Yeah. That the, the, you know, farmers work really hard to put food on people's plates, but the consumers have absolutely no relationship with them. And that's because a lot of farmers traditionally think that marketing is boasting. It's not the sort of thing that one does. Uh, farmers tend to be a lot more conservative, is that they want to get on and, and do and not communicate. But unless farmers recognize and realize the power of marketing, they're always going to be at the beck and call of the, the retailers, the big bosses, you know. And if you take me as an example, I've only got 30 acres, I got nothing. So how have I managed to create a brand? And this brand is about 15 million ton of a brand. And that's because I know and I focus all my energies with the relationship with the consumer. I'm listed today. My sausages are in the supermarket, not because they're the best in the world. I might claim they are. And it's not because they're the cheapest. It's because 
the relationship we have developed with the consumer. That's why the retailers are listing it, because they will have a lot of upset consumers if they're not listing it. And I have always been advocating to farmers, form cooperatives, form groupings, get your name, get your face on that label, because that then gives you power. Because what farmers find is that they become a commodity and then it's all about the price, about contracts and price. And therefore, as a lot of farmers would say, they're really at the bottom of the food chain. But if they're, if they're prepared to see and the, the power of marketing, it could really shift the balance for a lot of farmers who are prepared to commit to that. Yeah, I totally agree. And you're now currently on a mission to increase the diversity of British farming and you've got a, the new face of farming campaign. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, yes. So part of my strategy is we need new, fresh blood in the farming industry. It's very, very important. And that what I want to do is that I want to get people from my background to feel as though farming or any rural pursuit is within their reach. And the only way that's going to happen is for them to get a taste of what it's like to live and work in, in rural Britain. So if you're a young person in a town or a city and you want to go into farming, A, the teachers would laugh at you, and B, they wouldn't know how to facilitate that. Yeah. So that's why my new Face of Farming initiative, which is to give people from non-traditional farming backgrounds a taste the weekend, and then this year I'm doing it with Rittle Agricultural College, Okay. And taste the weekend of what it's like, what sort of jobs are available. If they then like it, they could then start to be part of the agricultural colleges and universities. So that's why that is very, very important to me. I think lots of farmers out there are begging for help. They, they would love to get people, more people involved. What we need to do is recognise that we've got to give people from urban Britain an opportunity for them to find out whether that's something that's going to work for them. Yeah, I think it's about breaking down those barriers and, and giving them that taste of what it's like. I say in Scotland, we have a charity, the Royal Highland Education Trust, who go out and bring farmers into schools to speak to the children and the children have a chance to go to the farm for a day for a visit. So it yeah. sounds a similar sort of initiative, but giving people more of a work experience as well, especially when they're college age. Exactly. What we need to do is that we need to change the image of farming. Farming is very much perceived to be, or land ownership is owned by wealthy posh people that it's it's a bit of a club it has its own languages its own customs because it doesn't feel inviting now one of the the, the things that i've always believed it the celebrity chef culture changed the catering industry it then made a lot of young people think oh that's an honorable p p profession to go into that's an exciting profession we need to do exactly the same thing with farming so actually for young people to think wow this is a really exciting profession um, for us to go into. But it means a big cultural sh shift in terms of the people who are seen to sort of represent um, rural Britain. That's the sort of stuff that I'm quite interested in changing. And your slogan on your website is for a life less ordinary. From listening to you today, you've certainly had less than an ordinary life. It's very inspiring to hear what you've been through to get to where you are. What advice would you give to a young person interested in being involved in farming? Well, I think that farming is one of the best professions you could be going into there. And that's what I, that, that's what I would be saying is this. We're living in a fantastic age at the moment. And we're going from what, I, what they call from having the skills in order to operate in the informational age. 
So I don't know how old you are, but you, you look quite young. You would have, you know, the system would have been go to school, go to university, get an education. And what they mean by that is that learn to do things in a way that is going to mean that you're of use for the informational age. And what we're now seeing with AI and with technology is the very things that people need to get specialist training for, be that a lawyer, be that an accountant, be that the doctor, you won't need those people in the future. You just won't need them. We're going to get to a stage where a nurse will be more important than a doctor because all, all a doctor is is somebody who has knowledge, which you can now get from going online. I could go and Google online a condition and know more about it than my consultant does. So the world is changing at a phenomenal speed and the future will belong to people who are conceptual, what they call going into the conceptual age, things that AR machines can't do. They just do what they're told. And it's about people who are not frightened to dream, people who are prepared to be audacious, people who are prepared to say, no, it ain't black, it's white. People who are, who are dreamers, who are creatives, to be able to see that, you know, in the past, you would have been seen as mad and irrelevant to the type of society we're living in. But those are the attributes that are going to be really key for the sort of future. And then you're always going to need farmers, always going to need farmers, and farmers who are going to be able to come up with interesting ideas of how to grow things, how to rear things. You know, one of the things I think is going to be interesting is about vertical farming. And so don't go into farming thinking that the way that things have done now are the ways that that will continue. They won't. What we want are dreamers who are going to be able to say, well, this is how I see the future. So that leads me nicely into my last question. You wrote a book titled Jeopardy, The Danger of Playing It Safe on the Path to Success. What do you think the real danger is of playing it safe in farming? Well, I think playing it safe in life is is very, very um, dangerous because the only way to measure your worth in life is by the number of mistakes that you make. Now, a lot of people think that actually, if they haven't made a mistake, if they haven't got things wrong, then, you know, their life is perfect. Well, that is an indication that you're slumming it in life. You're making a total waste of your life. You're not, you're not challenging yourself. The only way to grow and to develop and to improve is by making mistakes. And to see that making mistakes is the great indicator that you're pushing yourself to the max. And that also to recognize that actually there is not, it's not good being in survival mode. That actually, if your only purpose in life is to, you know, get up, do a job, to pay the bill in order to put food on the table, what a waste of a life. You know, life is a very precious gift. What a waste of it. And therefore, it's about how seeing jeopardy as being a very essential, important thing in order to grow and build. If your life is just to um, avoid jeopardy, you know, it's a waste of a life. And... So if you take that principle into farming, and I'm, I'm glad to see that actually there's a lot of changes that are going to be going in farming because we need to get a lot more jeopardy. We need to get a lot more risk in order to innovate. And some of the greatest achievements that we've ever achieved as a race is that about people who have the audacity to dream and to dream big. Because when you have the audacity to dream and dream big, there's no rule book. There's no guidelines of how it should be done 
and why it should be done. And we do have, you know, within our industry, we do have some phenomenal people. Take Glastonbury, you know, the farmer that had the idea to actually, you know, hold rock concerts in the field many, many moons ago. You could imagine all of his next door neighbors thinking he's nuts. <laughs> and, Absolutely. and that, you know, he's out of his head. And that man, because he had the audacity, he was he was he he, he embraced jeopardy, has started off a phenomenon that anybody would be proud of. And that's what it's about. So it's not about looking for approval. It's not about, you know, keeping your friends on board. It's to say to make my, my life worthwhile, where is the jeopardy? Where do I fail? Where do I get it wrong? And that is what I would like people to actually start embracing. I think that's a, a wonderful note to finish on, Wilfred, and I think our, our listeners will be inspired by your story today. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you very, very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Agriculture. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find our contact details in the show notes. Remember to subscribe so you get notified about our new episodes. This episode was presented by me, Mary Jane Laurie, produced by Kerry Hammond, and edited by Ross McKenzie in association with the Scottish Government. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.